Today's Old Testament reading comes from the book of Exodus, the story of how God provided food for the Israelites as they made their way through the desert en route from Egyptian servitude to the land God promised to their ancestors. The story is part of a cycle of stories, all gathered around the common theme of God's provision for their needs during their sojourn to their new home. And these stories were highly generative, providing fertile soil in which later Jewish and Christian interpretations grew and thrived. This manna was not what the people expected, but I'll try to show you that God gives them what they really need, and that's more than just a full belly. Of particular interest this morning are the three stories about Israel grumbling when their basic needs for food and water aren't being met. I mean, to me, it's understandable that they're grumbling. If you've ever gone on a road trip with kids, you probably are familiar with how when they get hungry or tired or anything like that, they start grumbling. Actually, my family can probably tell you that it's not just the kids who complain about those circumstances. Not always is my complaining justified, I admit, but sometimes it is. So I empathize with these Israelites, parched and hungry and footsore, when they complain in over-the-top language about how Moses is trying to kill them. What strikes me most about this is its honesty. It's people with real needs who won't be silent in the face of those needs. The grumbling of the people against Moses and Aaron is tantamount to a complaint against God, as Moses recognizes here and elsewhere. But in this story, God does not appear to take offense. That happens in a very similar story found in Numbers chapter 11, if you want to take a look it up. Instead of being offended at their grumbling, God satisfies their hunger by providing an abundance of food. But then, seeing their true need, God provides two additional things they need but don't even realize that they need. First, God provides the Sabbath. Here in Exodus 16, in connection with the gifts of manna and quail, this is the first time in Scripture the word Sabbath is used. The idea of Sabbath is mentioned briefly in Genesis chapter 2, where God rests on the seventh day and declares it holy. But the commandment that human beings should rest on the seventh day, too, is first given here. You might have observed that the lectionary skips over verses 5 through 8. For reasons I'm unable to fathom, the editors retained verse 4, which says there's to be a test, and then skip the next three verses, which say what the test is. First, God tells them that if they try to stockpile manna, as we put money in savings accounts, it will become wormy and inedible the next day. Would the people act accordingly? They didn't pass this test, but tried to stockpile the manna. Of course, they found it wormy and inedible the next day. Second, God tells them that they must not gather it on the seventh day, which was to be a Sabbath from then on. Instead, God would make their gathering on Friday doubly efficient and would prevent the, spool, the food from spoiling on Saturday so that they could ref refrain from work and just enjoy the Sabbath. They didn't pass that test either. Some went out on Saturday morning to try to gather manna and found there was none. What is the significance of introducing the Sabbath observance in this way? First, it shows God's glory 
by miraculously providing, providing on Friday enough food to last through Saturday without gathering. As if the gift of food were not enough, God also gives the gift of rest. Second, the Sabbath teaches them that work is a good gift from God. But that is an instrumental good and not an, an end in itself. God provides the manna, but the people have to work to get it. And the purpose of that work is to live, and perhaps even more importantly, to enjoy rest. More important than giving Israel food, and even more important than giving Israel the Sabbath, God gives the gift of himself. As it says, At twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall have your fill of bread, and then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. This theme that God gives himself when God gives food is picked up and augmented in the similar account found in Numbers chapter 11, where Moses sarcastically accuses God of neglecting to provide for his people. Did I conceive all this people? Did I give birth to them that you should say to me, carry them in your bosom as a nurse carries a sucking child to the land that you promised on oath to give their ancestors? Where am I to get meat and give to all this people? For they come weeping to me and say, Give us something to eat. I'm not able to carry all this people alone. They are too heavy for me. This astonishing passage accuses God of failing to provide as a mother provides. The implication of Moses' sarcastic question is that God conceived and gave birth to Israel and therefore is supposed to feed them. But implicit in Moses' Moses's objection is the intimate connection between mother and child that is more than simply feeding. In giving food, God gives God's self. This is why a jar of manna was to be placed in the sacred place that would later be occupied by the Ark of the Covenant, or even inside it. It's also why, why later stories about God providing food and water become such... It's also why the stories about God pro providing food and water become such fertile soil for later theological reflection. I'll give you just a few examples. Deuteronomy says that God gave manna so that the people would learn that we don't live by bread alone, but by fellowship with God. St. Paul reads the story about water coming from the rock in Exodus 17, notes that everyone drank from it, and says that the rock was the real presence of Christ giving drink to his people. In John's Gospel, Jesus discerns that the manna story is not just about bread, but about God's life-giving presence, which is why he says, the bread of God that comes down from heaven and gives life, and gives life to the world I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. So there are at least three ways in which God, uh, in which the story is about God's self-giving. God gives the manna and the water as necessities for physical life. God gives the Torah and especially the, Shab the Sabbath law as necessities of spiritual life. And God shares with Israel God's very self, a real person, 
who can be swayed by appeals to his compassion, even when those appeals take the form of whiny, self-centered grumbling. The Manna story is rich in insights, too, about how, how God's people are to have a different set of values than those that seem most universally present in human cultures. If you read on in Exodus 16, you find that not only does the manna appear miraculously, but its distribution among people is miraculously equal. Each person is told to go out and gather as much as they need, around a liter or so of manna for each person. Some gathered more and some less, but when they got back home, they measured it all out, and those who had gathered much had nothing left over, and those who gathered little had no shortage. They gathered as much as they needed. I don't know how that miracle occurred, but I suspect it might have been the ordinary miracle of people sharing with one another. The manna couldn't be stockpiled, so no one had more than they needed while, uh, while others went without. There wasn't an income gap when, between the rich and the poor. All of them had nothing, but everyone had plenty. God gave them enough to satisfy their hunger, but not so much, and not in a way that would permit them to think that they satisfied it themselves. The only self-reliant people in this story are disobedient people, whose efforts end up being fruitless anyway. They have no choice but to rest in the knowledge that they cannot provide for themselves, but they can rely utterly on God. There are so many takeaways from this story, but if I can leave you with just one that seems really important to, be, to me today, it is that one. We do not earn our food, our wealth, our minds, our bodies. We think to ourselves that we worked hard for our goods and therefore that we deserve them, but even our ability to work is something that we receive as a gift. We're proud of our educational achievements, but we receive our teachers' investments in us as a gift. We're able to devote time and effort to education because someone else gave us the opportunity to study. And even having a good mind is not something automatic. It's a gift. Athletes work hard to build the strength and skills needed to excel in their sports, but it is God who made their legs and arms and hands. Both our work and our rest are gifts from God. And the more we come to realize the truth of this, the more we are able to live in an enchanted world in which blessings seem to drop from the sky, nourishing us like milk from the breast of God. Amen.